Welcome back to the Weird Sisters podcast. I'm Manning. And I'm Liz. Welcome to part two of our finale. We've been recapping the entire series of novels. Yeah, it'll be even harder now that we're recording a month later. <laughs> yeah, I know. There are some of these that I definitely remembered more about last time. And since then, like, I've gotten a little foggier. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I believe we left off in 1998 with Carpe Jugulum. This is the vampire one with Granny Weatherwax and Annie Og. And, oh gosh, I think this one has Agnes in it, right? Yes, you are absolutely right. Okay, I was like, I feel like Magrat's out at this point. But it's where a powerful vampire family moves in somewhere in Lanker or nearby and starts doing vampire-y things. Yeah, you're mostly on the money there. They move into Lanker. Okay. <laughs> specifically because King Varence invited them to celebrate the birth and like christening of his and Magrat's new kid, Esmeralda. Oh, yeah. And so because the king invited them in, they have their run of the land. Yeah, I remember this is the one where, like, the vampires are, like, actually kind of scary as far as creatures in the Discworld go. Yeah. Because, <laughs> like, they're very much self-aware of vampire tropes and are deliberately seeking to arm themselves against them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and especially because they're, like, definitely antagonists in the book. Like, they do things throughout the book that are, like, really intimidating and definitely set the main characters back. So, like, they're real threats in the story. And all the other vampires we see, I think, are, like, allies. Or at least not one or the other. And so they definitely just don't feel quite as intimidating. Yeah, well, like, we've had some other vampire antagonists. But yeah, these are the main ones where it's like, the vampires are the bad guys. And also just mm -hmm. like, vampirism as a like narrative trope. Uh, I remember the big thing about this one is at the end of the book, I think the like dad vampire bites Granny Weatherwax. And she is like pretty down and out, it seems like. And she basically just wills herself out of turning into a vampire. Sort of, yeah. It's that uh, Granny Weatherwax borrowed her own blood. And so when they, like, drank it, when all of them drank it, they absorbed her. Mm -hmm. And so, like, she gained control over them. Yeah, which is a, a wild twist. <laughs> yeah, I remember that one fondly. I think it's definitely a very fun one. Uh, next one, 1999, The Fifth Elephant. Oh, gosh. Okay, so this one is a watch book, right? It's a Vimes book? Yep. And this is the one where they go to meet the High King of Dwarves. I like how you said the High King of Dwarves, just like <laughs> doop a doop a doop, going up the mountain. It's the Low King of Dwarves. The Low King of Dwarves. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I know there's a modifier in there. <laughs> <laughs> the principle's the same. Yeah. <laughs> the most King of Dwarves. Yeah. Gosh, I cannot really remember anything about this one other than I remember, I'm pretty sure Cheery and Detritus were in this one. And Lady Sybil, like, basically ties up the political conflict at the end while Vimes takes a nap. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Accurate. Uh, <laughs> I think a big part of this story is that there's just, like, Nazi werewolves mm -hmm. who are Angua's family. Oh, yeah, and Carrot's in there, too. Yes, and Angua's old wolf friend. Yeah. It's unclear whether he's a boyfriend or not. Yeah, <laughs> it's... A, a, ambiguous but yeah because i remember there was like a tiff over that and i think it's carrot almost dies at one point but he's carrot so he like doesn't actually die mm -hmm. and there's a subplot we didn't like very much about fred colon being put in charge of the watch oh inevitably descending into madness oh yeah fred's a complicated character for me because like these are comedy books and he is very specifically designed to be comic relief in all of them it's just unfortunate that he tiptoes into some like very distasteful areas at some point like throughout the series yeah <sighs> it's a pretty good book and also there's the seeds for what gets explicitly stated later on that the low king of dwarves is actually like female which i think we mentioned in the previous one is like a big deal for disbook dwarfs Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember especially the ending of this one feeling very, like, adventurous and exciting and 
like I, I I remember this one pretty fondly, even though I'm very foggy on the details at this point. Oh, and speaking to your point about Detritus and Cheery being in this one, there was that great scene where one of the traditionalist dwarves used a slur about Cheery, and Detritus like stood up and like, was a good ally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like coming back to me bit by bit. I think the problem with a lot of the watch books is that because of the nature of the kinds of stories they are, a lot of the details start to blend together for me. Mm. And and it's like, I think the vast majority of them are like very good books. I definitely think they're, I don't know if I'd say they're their best like sub-series of Discworld, but they're definitely pretty high up there. But this I don't know. The specifics just are kind of gone the second I finish the book. (laughs) So we enter the 21st century with the truth. Now this one I remember. This one is the newspaper one with William DeWord and Sacharissa Cripslock, where they're founding the Ankh-Morpork Times or the Times. Yeah. I remember that they're working with i know Otto's introduced i know that they're like the dwarves who maintain the printing press are there but i don't actually think i have any of the plot <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh there's yet another conspiracy to overthrow lord veterinary mm-hmm. and like it involves a pair of hired goons called the new firm and like an actor who looks a lot like veterinary named charlie oh yeah and it turns out to be headed up by william deward's father Oh gosh, I think I'm remembering bits of the end of this one, <laughs> which um, are, are gruesome if I'm correct. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it avoids being too gruesome, I think. Oh, yeah, it's just the implication. There's definitely, Discworld as a whole does not dip its toes a whole lot into like gross factors, but there are definitely a couple scenes that are like, oh gosh, this is like going there, ain't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, Something I've noticed while we've been doing these recaps is that for the stories where a new thing comes to the Discworld, its magical malevolence is inversely proportional to how much effort was put into making it work. Like, specifically Mm -hmm. effort Mm -hmm. on page. Oh, yeah. Like, the dwarves who developed the printing press here put in a lot more effort than, say, the alchemists who made the movie film back in moving pictures. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. I think that's a great point, especially because, like, with moving pictures, the creatures, the monsters, the whatever, the villain at the end of the day is kind of supposed to be eldritch in nature. And a big part of eldritch fiction is not necessarily understanding what you're up against. Yeah, definitely. Okay. 2001, we have Thief of Time. Oh, shoot. Now that I'm looking at this one, I don't think I remember anything. (laughs) Is this a death book? Kinda, yeah. Okay. It's like, it, I think it typically gets put into the death series lists. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's, um, oh gosh, I'm completely blanking on her name. Susan? Susan, yeah. <laughs> I had Agnes, like, stuck, and I was like, oh no. <laughs> oh gosh, yeah, I really don't remember anything about this one. It involves Susan and two other characters, Lucy and Jeremy, and they turn out to be the same boy who... Mm, who uh-huh. is the son of the anthropomorphic personification of time. Yeah. And the auditors hire Jeremy to build a magical clock that will stop time. And Lucy is a member of the History Monks, and who's like a been uh, referenced in at least one previous Discworld book in Small Gods. Like, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Actually, no, Lucy was the like main abbot. Yeah, the, n- now that you're... Uh, explaining. I, I remember that this is the one where the auditors are like turning themselves into approximations, I guess, of humans so that they can go about the world and try to put their plan into action and it has consequences for them in their understanding of existence. Yeah. It's Lobsang was the character. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, because this one has um, the female auditor character whose name is completely gone to me at this point but she does change it like three quarters of the way through the story (laughs) her name starts out as myria legend for like myriad legion because the auditors have Mm -hmm. this whole thing about like they are not singular entities yeah and then susan in a very romantic scene i thought (laughs) uh, helps her change it to unity to be like she is the one of them yeah 
Mm-hmm. That's like what's coming back to me is the like relationship between Susan and Unity and Unity's fate at the end of the book, which is doesn't she like do a dive into a, a vat of chocolate or something? Literal death by chocolate. Yeah, <laughs> which I remember being really sad, but sounds very silly with just that context. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and it's implied that Susan and Lobsang have a romantic relationship. Which is okay. Yeah, sure, I guess. And also, Death and the four other horsemen of the apocalypse reunite. Oh, yeah, because I remember Moore's wife. Yeah, she's, I don't even know if she's actually ever in it or she's just like talked about, but. No, she's in it, yeah. Okay. Yeah, she is a current or former Valkyrie. Something we didn't touch on during our episode of Thief of Time, as as far as I remember, is that Lobsang accidentally uses what the monks call the form of the coyote technique to stop himself midair, prevent himself from falling. Because that's a reference to Wily Coyote. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. There are definitely like parts of this book that like, despite the fact I remembered nothing about it prior to this conversation, definitely like fill me with this these feelings of like tenderness. Yeah, I think part of that is because this was kind of, like I said in the episode, the end of the Death series, mm-hmm. which was a shame. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Death is a great character. Susan's a great character. Um... And, like, we're just barely past halfway through all of the Discworld books and for it to be the last one. Like, that's a bit tragic. But the thing I like best about the Death books is that I think Pratchett's philosophy about, like, love and compassion and the relationships we have with people are at their most, like, poignant. Definitely, yeah. Moving on, still in 2001, we have The Last Hero. Uh, now this one is the illustrated children's book? Not really children's book, but yeah. Yeah, but it's the one where Cohen and a bunch of other aged heroes are going to storm the Mountain of the Gods. I can't remember exactly why they're doing that, um, but they're doing that. And a uh, like, small group of people from Ankh Morpork, including Carrot and our Leonardo da Vinci knockoff, are trying to figure out how to get them to the mountaintop before Cohen and the group so that they don't accidentally end the world. And there's a silly scene where they're on the moon with dragons. Yes. (laughs) You pretty much are on the money there. Cohen and his silver horde ultimately kind of want to die, and so they go storm the palace of the gods. Mm -hmm. And they're joined by a Xena parody, Vina, who... (laughs) is also old and doesn't really, like, add a whole lot to the story beyond that. Yeah. I remember the art is in this is really great, and it's short, so that helps, I think, any weirdness in the plot or story. <laughs> At least we finally see off the Cohen character, so we don't have to worry about him <laughs> reappearing. Yeah, he's definitely not one of my favorites, but I, I can see where he needs, like, an actual goodbye. Especially considering the point of his character. Yeah. Next up, still in 2001. So some of these stories were a little bit weak because, like, they all just came out so close together. Uh, There probably Mm -hmm. was, like, not a whole lot of editing time. Yeah. I mean, like, I, uh, for as long as I've written, I've written, like, one whole complete book length thing and so the idea of doing multiple multiple of those within a couple year time span of each other seems absolutely bonkers yeah (laughs) still in 2001 we have the amazing maurice and his educated rodents this one is a ya book technically right yeah okay yeah it's about a cast of talking mice and a talking cat uh who basically run a racket with this young boy where the mice invade a town and the boy goes to the people of the town and say, hey, I'll get rid of all the mice for you Pied Piper style if you pay me. And because they're all in cahoots, the mice just leave the town and nobody's the wiser. Um, But they go into a town where surprisingly there are no other mice around. And it's because the rat catchers have been doing something nefarious and the consequences of their actions is that one of them creates 
a rat king, which is this horrifying monstrosity um, out to basically destroy them all. Yeah, and like conquer the world pretty much. Yeah. So this one is getting a new animated movie. Have you seen the trailer for it? I have not, but I did hear recently that that was like a thing. Actually, hang on. Uh, I'm going to edit out the gap, I'm, but I kind of want to get your reaction to the trailer. So I just sent you okay. a link. Oh, yeah. It has this very like bin- big chinned cat. <laughs> Okay, yeah, I mean, that looks cute. I really like the design of the rats. Yeah. <laughs> and it seems like, um, I can't remember what the boy's name is at all, but uh, he seems like he has more personality in this than he did in the book. <laughs> yeah, Keith. Oh, Keith. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, like, I'm reserving judgment until I see the actual movie. Uh, it feels like they are, like, just sort of taking inspiration from it, but just kind of turning out something pretty standard. It does have something that feels a little, like, DreamWorks-y about it. Yeah. But, like, I, I do think this is a great story, especially for kids. And, I don't know, as a, as a former weird kid myself, I particularly in, like stories that get a little scary. And so I'm very pro this kind of getting a new young audience yeah and hey if it gets more people interested in discworld then i'm for it Mm -hmm. yeah but with the legacy of discworld adaptations on the big or small screen i do think it's totally earned to be a little cautious yeah moving on to 2002 we have night watch i mean this is obviously a watch book you would think (laughs) i hope so this is where the whole part about uh, a lot of the watch books kind of blending together is definitely rearing its head um this is the one where sam vimes gets sent back in time oh yeah yeah this is like the watch book as people talk about it online i guess Vimes gets sent set back in time to a, I guess technically it's a revolution. I, albeit it doesn't seem like it necessarily like shakes up a whole lot politically in Ankh-Morpork. But he ends up being kind of the mentor to a younger version of himself and has to relive these awful, horrible days in this uh, conflict and also catch a bad guy that fell back through time with him from the future yeah i remember like really liking this one plot wise i do think it does the thing that i think a lot of the great discworld books do where it's very thoughtful Mm -hmm. on the relationship and cultural issues of the discworld in ways that are obviously allegories for our own world and it's got a really strong plot. I'm not going to say necessarily a whole lot of the characters are super, super meaningful or memorable, but they do a serviceable job in the book of either A, providing cannon fodder, or B, being people for Vimes to have friction against as he's trying to contend with going through this traumatic event again and keeping the younger version of himself alive and also keep the old version of himself alive so he can get back to his family yeah and also like at the end sybil gives birth to sam vimes jr yeah which is very sweet Mm -hmm. yeah and i think marks a big shift in vimes's character there's also a young veterinary in this one yeah (laughs) i do think it's interesting to see veterinary in a context where he's not the patrician who has been in this position for a long time he knows what he's doing he's a much older person so he's like got his grasp on the world to see this younger character who's very much like plotting things and learning things and like he's still very much a veterinary and i think he's got a good like b plot going for the book and helping to provide context for everything but i think he's really only as memorable as he is because he's veterinary and we've seen him elsewhere yeah that's very fair yeah <laughs> and also like the return of the history monks yeah, because um, Lutze is kind of coaching Vimes to like, nah, you've got to like do something while you're here. <laughs> All right, moving on to 2003, we have The We Free Men. This is the first Tiffany Aching book. Yep. Yeah, um, this is the one that I somehow coincidentally read when I was a very young child. <laughs> um, Tiffany Aching, who's like, I don't know, nine or ten in this book, kind of realizes that something's gone a little weird with the world. And through a combination of her relationship with the Nakmak Fiegel and her own uh, persistent personality, realizes that there's fairies abound. Uh, no, there's the elves abound. And 
she goes on an adventure to rescue her little brother and the lost prince of her kingdom on the chalk uh, from the Elven Queen. Yeah. I also really liked how Fairyland just kind of has that like like video game draw distance where just like mm-hmm. things become more detailed as you're looking at them. Yeah, because it really hammers home the idea of like glamour where this is all an orchestration for the viewer to convince them to stay or to be afraid or for some other emotional aim. So there's no point in it existing unless you're focusing on something. Yeah, it saves memory. Yeah. <laughs> I, I love the Tiffany Aching books. I have a very fondness for them. And I don't think this one is my favorite out of all of them, but I do definitely quite like this one. And I think a lot of my love for it is nostalgia. <laughs> That's very fair. Yeah, still in 2003, Monstrous Regiment. Yeah, I do think this is my favorite Discworld book. Um, Spoilers. I know. A preview of what's to come. This one is about some far-flung country on the Discworld that is very deeply religious and authoritarian. And we have a young girl named Polly who disguises herself as a young man and joins her military in search of her brother i think if i remember correctly yeah but she joins up with this regiment and it's uh full of a lot of humans but there's also an igor there's a troll and there's also a vampire among the regiment and so the book is them basically traveling down to where this main battle is and along the way polly and the other members of our group kind of dis- discover that they are actually all, in fact, girls who have disguised themselves as young men in order to join the military, including their leader. <laughs> I really like this one. I think it's, it's definitely the least funny of a lot of the Discworld books, mm-hmm. though it does have a couple moments in there. But I like its tone. I like the weight that the war and the consequences it will have for the characters. I really like the characters too. Like they're all very memorable and they play off each other really well. And you can tell that it feels like a lot of thought went into them. I just think it's a really, really great book in general. And I think it's one of the best in the Discworld series. Hell yeah. (laughs) I stand by my description of that book being Mulan Oops All Lesbians edition. (laughs) Yeah, correct. Because there's at least one pair of definitely sapphic characters. Oh, yeah. Like, textually confirmed. (laughs) (laughs) And, like, they're not the healthiest relationship in the world. But, like, they they rock. Yeah. (laughs) They're interesting. And that's the most important thing, I think. (laughs) But I do think I'll go back through and read some of these ones again. And I think this one will probably be the first one I get back to. Hell, yeah. 2004... A hat full of sky. Uh, yeah, this is the second. This is the second Tiffany Aching book. In this one, I believe she uh, is sent off to some other witch's house in order to learn the craft of being a witch. Uh huh. And this is the one with the hiver, which I, I'm struggling with it because a lot of the like characteristics and thinking of with the hiver i think are actually from one from i shower midnight (laughs) and so i'm having a hard time discerning what belongs where but yeah tiffany's away from the chalk for the first time she's struggling with you know being away from home and learning how to be a witch um and the climax of the book is that tiffany faces off with the hiver at this big festival that the witches are having and she basically grants the hiver a death and walks it through the door into the endless desert and through granny weatherwax's help gets back to this festival and out of granny's respect for her granny offers tiffany this invisible hat um for for a witch's hat and that's where the title a hat full of sky comes from yeah, I did like how during our episode of it, like we had you get quote unquote possessed by the hiver. <laughs> oh yeah. 
Yeah, that was fun. I don't know if you listened to the episode, but I added in just like a, a slight little background noise to represent the hiver. Just like, yeah, <laughs> it was a fun bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I uh, like I think all of the Tiffany aching books are great. I think I said that earlier, but this one is no different, even though I'm a little foggy and all of the specifics with it. But I wish I had known about it when I was a, a younger person. Like a lot of young people, I had a, a difficult time to like adjusting growing up and becoming like a real full person. And I think the Tiffany books deal a lot with what it is like to grow up and to kind of tr- try to figure out what your place in the world is. And I think that if I had had them when I was younger, that I would have been able to do a lot of that without feeling as alone and confused about the whole thing as I was well said yeah and I think that's a big part of my fondness for them because you know Tiffany grows up in the series and the idea of like thinking back at from this point in my adult life to you know when I was 10 or when I was 14 or when I was 17 and those things I was feeling like I don't know like I I, resonated a lot with me to kind of like revisit those feelings through these books. I definitely get you. So moving on, we have Going Postal. This is another moist, no, this is the first moist book. Yeah. This is the one where he is arrested and <laughs> as punishment from Veninari, um, he's put in charge of running Ankh-Morpork's Pork's long failing postal service and he crafts it back into its working form, much to the dismay of some people who are hoping just to like get rid of it in its entirety. But I remember the post office burns down at one point. There is a machine that they have for some reason, and it's never really relevant to the plot, that creates letters from the future. And, oh, and yeah, of course, we meet a, a Adorabelle Deerheart. Hell yeah. Our goth queen. <laughs> Pretty much on the money there. Slight correction is that the... A machine they have was designed as a letter sorting machine and just like mm. can get letters from the future and alternate timelines because it has a central gear where pi equals three. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's very silly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I remember this one being a fun one. Moist is a very silly character in this and he and Adora play off of each other very well, I think. They're very good. <laughs> yeah, And also there's a fair amount of golem stuff in here. Oh yeah, because Adora runs the the golem trust. Well, I, th- I think that the golems largely own it. She's like just the human yeah. face of it. Yeah, she's involved. And is this, isn't part of the plot with this one is that the clacks are kind of struggling because they're a monopoly and the people in charge are choosing to exploit the people who are using their service. Yep. And... Adora's father created the clack system or was one of the many people who created it and her brother is at the beginning of the book and he is pushed from one of the clax towers yeah yeah mm-hmm. okay yeah I was like I know that like moist whole thing is putting the post office back together but that's not like really what the book is about like that's what's happening but <laughs> yeah that's basically it <laughs> moving on 2005 we have thud yeah uh, this is uh, another watch book. Oh yeah, um, this is the one where the conflict between the dwarves and the trolls like really rears its head. Yeah, I remember it's the one where the uh, symbol and the creature that it kind of represents um, the long dark, the summoning dark. Okay, yeah, it's where the summoning dark is introduced. And we see things kind of from its perspective throughout the book, but we don't necessarily understand like what perspective we're actually seeing that from. And it's kind of latched itself onto Vimes and it's finally able to kind of get its teeth into him when he is lost in the caves Coombe Valley mm-hmm. and when he's trying to stop the conflict between the dwarves and the trolls from evolving into an all-out war but he's able to kind of like fight it back and also during that climactic scene he yell reads where is my cow to young Sam <laughs> like from down in the cave yeah because he's never missed a story time yeah. Vimes <laughs> may not be the, the perfect dad but you, yeah you cannot say that he doesn't try <laughs> yeah I mean I think this book especially like 
highlighted his dadliness <laughs> and how he's just like trying really, really hard. <laughs> 2006, we have Wintersmith. Yeah, this is the third Tiffany Aching book. This is the one where at one of her, while she's with one of the elder witches who's teaching her, Tiffany attends this kind of ceremony for the changing of the seasons to winter. And she is compelled to join the dance going on and dances with the wintersmith who then I don't know he becomes really focused on her and so the book is him influencing the world and causing all these kind of great acts of destruction because he's ultimately winter and just a force of nature and Tiffany trying to fix those mistakes and kind of deal with the wintersmith and it comes to a head where he kidnaps her to a palace where she will replace the queen of summer yeah the summer lady the summer lady yeah i was like i'm foggy on the name but tiffany knows like you know this is is not good this is not gonna work out um and knows she kind of needs to deal with him and so she kisses the wintersmith and does this magic trick that granny teaches her about shifting where the heat of something is and she transfers all of that into the wintersmith melting him out of his humanoid form and returning everything back to normal. And like there's that whole bit about the wintersmith trying to become a little bit more human mm-hmm. and like going about it in just like a very literal physical way as opposed to death oh, who yeah. like very much is fascinated by the emotional resonance of it. Mm-hmm. Like the wintersmith tries to like construct a human body. Yeah, which now that I'm thinking about it is like a really interesting contrast because like Death is ultimately a construct of humanity, but winter is winter. And he may be, personification is maybe a bit of a stretch, but he's just still a force of nature at the end of the day. And so that little bit extra humanity that death has is the crucial difference for what allows him to become more human in the non-literal way and then the way that actually matters. Yeah. Moving on, we have 2007, Making Money. Yeah, this is the second Moist book where in punishment for doing a really good job with the post office, he's also put in charge of the Mint and Bank of Ankh-Morpork. And the only thing I really remember about this book is that he makes a case that potatoes are more valuable than gold, which, yes, um... Yeah. And also that the like lead banker, um, which is a very stuffy, serious man, was actually originally from a clown family. Yeah, well, like, point of order, Moist is not put in charge of the Bank and Royal Mint. Mm-hmm. He is put in charge of a dog oh. who is in charge of the Bank and Royal Mint. Oh, yeah. <laughs> which is very fun. Yeah, he's just the babysitter. Yeah, I did not like this one as much as Going Postal, um, but I think if you really liked Going Postal, you'd probably like this one as well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that is very fair to say. <laughs> he also ends up, in quote-unquote, inventing paper money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's also a um, subplot about the, like, the family who has like been in charge of the bank for generations the heir apparent to the like the position of head of the family who wants to be to become lord veterinary oh yeah it involves some very gross stuff yeah yeah this is uh one of the areas where it's like oh we're going like gruesome huh yeah it is what it is yeah like it's very far from one of the worst disc world books it's just very far from one of my favorites but i can see where other people would really enjoy it i do remember liking the description of just like this machine that one of the characters has for just like monitoring the flow of money throughout Ankh-Morpork. oh yeah that's right yeah i don't know if you know this about me my first love is the audiokinetic sculpture at the Boston Museum of Science. <laughs> oh, I don't know what that is. Hold on, let me look it up. Oh, is it the one that's like very Rube Goldberg looking? Yes. Okay, cool. <laughs> yeah, I'm watching a video of it. <laughs> it's captivating, right? Uh-huh. Yeah, I could see where I just like would end up sitting there like sipping on a coffee and not moving for like an hour. <laughs> <laughs> 
it's so good. Like, <laughs> if I had, like, a hundred thousand dollars that I could only spend on selfish <laughs> things, I would want have one of those constructed and just put on my front lawn. Oh, yeah. No. Very pro that. <laughs> Skipping 2008, heading to 2009 with Unseen Academicals. This is the sports one, right? Yes, sport definitely happens. <laughs> um, it's, I guess, maybe technically a wizard's book. Um, they're really ancillary characters in there. Um, but because of some shenanigans, let's put it that way, <laughs> Ongmore Pork needs to reinstate a kind of like very underground sport um and put it back into like a mainstream and we are introduced to orcs in the disc world um in the form of a young man who tells everybody um and to some extent for a majority of the book believes he is actually a goblin and he's actually very very good at at this sport, whatever this sport is called, um, alongside football, his, football, okay, alongside his friend, and there's also a thing in there with like runway modeling, yeah, <laughs> and like the whole concept of being a model minority and such. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I remember like having fun with this book while I was reading it and trying to recall it. Now makes me remember how little of it is actually like super relevant for the overarching plot of the book <laughs> yeah that tracks <laughs> yeah i think this one is um one that uh, maybe a lot of fans could probably like take it or leave it yeah i think you're not alone in saying that <laughs> so 2010 we have i shall wear midnight yeah this is the final tiffany aching book where a creature that is very hyper like but is not actually the Hiver, kind of starts to rear its head after the consequences of Tiffany doing these great feats of magic in the earlier books. And what it's kind of doing is riling up people's anger and distrust, especially towards witches, and kind of putting that into full force. A lot of the book is Tiffany trying to manage her relationships with people she's supposed to be caring for and also granny weatherwax dies at the beginning of the book and gives her setting to tiffany um who now needs to also care for that on top of her home in the chalk and you're mixing up two books oh am i yeah oh gosh yeah oh yeah Uh, i was thinking of the shepherd's crown (laughs) yes but like uh you're partially correct okay i don't know what part i'm correct on (laughs) in this one the hyver like creature you described is uh, the revenant of a former witch hunter Mm -hmm. who like fell in love with a witch and like she basically he went in to try to rescue her and she just pulled him into the fire and like now he just like turns up every once in a generation to try and destroy the prime witch of the age. And part of what Tiffany's dealing in here is Roland, and uh, I'm forgetting his, in this book, for the most part, fiance's name. Yeah, Letitia, who's this beautiful young woman um, that Roland has known for a long time. Um, And they're getting married, and Tiffany kind of has some complicated feelings about that. And, like, she ends up marrying them, like, acting as the officiant to a just, like, impromptu wedding to them Mm -hmm. so that Mm -hmm. she can make that ground sacred space to exercise the cunning man is his name. Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. And despite how a lot of stories would handle this, uh, Tiffany actually doesn't end up hating Letitia. They end up finding that they have a lot of coming ground, especially because Letitia is a sort of witch although she lacks a lot of the experience or training to do that in full force although she wants to be one yeah i think the reason i was getting this mixed up with the shepherd's crown is because i think in a lot of the ways this one feels like the end of the tiffany books for me like i I think this one kind of has a stronger final book feeling than the shepherd's crown ultimately does (laughs) fair but yeah (laughs) This is also where we get the return of Escarina Smith. Oh, yeah. She just gets a brief cameo, but it's still, it's a good one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I remember really liking this one. Hell yeah. And also, Tiffany finds a new sweetheart in the form of Preston, oh. who's a, like, castle guard who's really, like, way too smart for the role. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, like, is, is so much smarter that he's bad at it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because a, a big part of why this one feels so meaningful i think is tiffany spends a lot of 
her time in the books kind of dealing with issues on her own and trying to learn or make up for her mistakes and a lot of that requires her kind of to do that on her own and in this one she is letting a lot of people in especially after the complexities of her relationship with Roland kind of separate them a little bit and she's under a lot of stress otherwise yeah definitely so 2011 we have snuff yeah this is the final watch book this is the one where they vimes and lady sybil and young sam go out to a country estate that they have uh, ostensibly for vimes to take a vacation for once but while they're there uh vimes finds himself embroiled in yet again another mystery but in this case it is that there is a local group of goblins who the wealthy people in the area have been basically trafficking for slaves um out of the area yep. yeah i'm i mean I, I know we talked about this like in the episode um there's some issues with this one um i also don't think it's the strongest watch book but yeah that's kind of how i feel about that one reasonable i think that those sentiments are shared yeah i recall having this like some structural issues with it like i have with a lot of discworld books mm-hmm. and also just like my big issue was with the way that it treats it indulges um like a lot in the idea of just like if people just see that there's a good thing that this uh, oppressed people do then they will stop oppressing them yeah which is I'm not sure is like super borne out by reality. Yeah, it's very simplistic. The Discord does run on stories and narrative and everything, so... Uh... Yeah, I, I think a lot of the issues that this book in particular have are are really complicated and intertwined with other issues. And so it's hard to like necessarily like parse those out to try to make sense of what it's doing with them. Yeah. And also that's um, the return of the summoning dark who's just like hanging out in Vimes's head now. <laughs> yeah, it just gives him superpowers. <laughs> yes, I was literally about to say that. <laughs> yeah, that's basically like the big thing I remember from this book is uh, it's got some yikes content and Vimes is the superhero now. Moving on. Uh, we have 2013 Raising Steam. I think this is technically considered a moist book, but basically somebody invents trains and the first half of the book is really concerned with trains. And uh, then it is all about the clerical work of establishing a train system. And then the last third of the book is about a dwarvish rebellion, I think is probably the most appropriate word, trying to overthrow the low king and so the trains need to be used to get the low king back to their capital city to resolve that conflict yeah that is fairly accurate yeah i do think this is probably one of my least favorite discord books so i'm being a little harsh on it right now but (laughs) I, i i don't have fond memories of this one fair it wasn't great i think if you really like trains you probably really enjoy a lot of it yeah, and finally, 2015's The Shepherd's Crown. Yeah, now this is the final Tiffany King book. This is the one where Granny Weatherwax dies. And so Tiffany is caring for her setting on the chalk and her setting in Lanker and is also kind of dealing with the return of the elves uh, now that Granny is gone and the barriers are a little thinner which involves the elves overthrowing their queen that we've seen in the last books with them um, and casting her out into the mortal world where she is then cared for by Tiffany who has a bit of a change of heart and sides with the humans in the battle against the elves and is killed at the end of the book although the way you phrased it it makes it sound like tiffany had the change of heart to to side with the humans (laughs) no tiffany presumably would always side with the humans i don't know maybe maybe that could change but yeah this is not a terribly long book it i remember it definitely like kind of really showing pratchett's declining health at this point yeah and so i think think that there are ideas that this book sets up 
that are really meaningful and effective in the fairly limited capacity that they get explored. Um, but it just kind of feels like there's a lot of the book that's kind of missing. Yeah. But I, I don't think it's a bad book despite my, like, I don't know, structural issues with it. And there was some okay stuff with Jeffrey, the boy who wants to be a witch. Yeah, I think he reveals a lot about, I think, Pratchett's own ideas about gender and ideas about how this world is changing, like, on a whole culturally. And I think one of the things that this book does particularly really well uh, is grappling with the idea of the world is changing and it's big and unknown and kind of scary. And how do we deal with that? And the fact that you can't necessarily stop that from happening, but it doesn't have to be so scary that it stops you in your tracks. Mm-hmm. So that was the Discworld series. What did you think? Yeah, I mean, having gotten to the end of it, I very much see why it stands culturally where it does. Mm-hmm. Like, there's so much that the series does that is, like, so big and meaningful and... <laughs> It's funny and it can be serious and it can be really sad and heartfelt. And the fact that it spans so much time means that, like, you have generations of people who get to grow up and find the Discworld. And I think Pratchett is a <laughs> incredible author who, on top of his clearly, like, very efficient process, is able to write a lot of stories that are very, like, cohesive in their ultimate, like, goal while having a lot of variety and the kinds of stories that they're telling within that world mm-hmm. the discworld in a whole is deeply compassionate for people it <laughs> believes in and loves stories it wants people to be good and believes in that very very deeply and you know like i don't know i just i get it <laughs> now that i'm at the <laughs> end of it <laughs> i have a lot of fun i mean there are definitely some discworld books that just don't work for me and a lot of that is just because like they're just not really the kind of stories I would jive with and not because they're bad stories at all but I think for the most part like a lot of them are really fun and they have like so much diversity like (laughs) I've mentioned ad nauseum at this point that I love the Tiffany Aching books but I also (laughs) really like the witches books a lot in general and I think the vast majority of the watch books are really 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 good mysteries even that there are a couple that I just like fairly strongly dislike so yeah i mean like i think there's a little something for everybody in here hell yeah uh going into the sort of discussion segments um i i've come up with some thesis statements for the individual sub series so i want to get your opinions on if these seem like reasonable (laughs) yeah so first up the wizards series i would say that their thesis is that having power is not the same as having agency yeah because like rincewind is not a powerful wizard. He's the least powerful wizard. But in some respects, he's the one with the most agency. Yeah. Even if he is like a plaything of the gods and like gets put into situations against his will. But he feels a little less like confined by the hierarchy that the wizards exist in. And he doesn't like quite think the same way as most of the other wizards. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that frees him up to make the right choices. A lot of the time. Yeah, I see it. Uh, next up, so for the Watch series, I'd say that the thesis is those with power will always seek to expand the scope of their influence, and therefore authority should only be empowered to act on behalf of the common good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. These are also just kind of yeah. me projecting a lot of my thoughts onto the series. <laughs> no, but I think that's like totally right because I do think the watch books in general are very concerned with like what do what does a society like do and how does it function and what does that say about us and what should we allow or not allow and I, I think that's a, a really good synthesis of that idea. For the death books. I'd say they're about how there are powerful forces that influence the world, but they are not the sole factor in determining who you are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if you want to be, you can be someone who resists them. Yeah. I, I, I think especially with the death books, the idea of like belief is a power is one of the most like incredible things that you could have. And <laughs> if you have belief that you can be or do something that is often more than enough, to get you on that path yeah 
the loosely termed Industrial Revolution series, which encompasses a lot of like one-offs and the moist fun lip big books. I'd say that they're about how life is change. And if you want those changes to be positive, you have to put in the work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that's pretty on the money. I think a lot of the Discworld in general um, kind of supports the idea that you should care about things. And if you care about things and work for them, that they will get better. It's like being involved in the world around you, in like your community and everything, mm-hmm. is a powerful force for making the world a the place that you want to live in. Yeah, community is not a spectator sport. And last one, the Witches series, which I saved for last because it's us. <laughs> to be human is to be immersed in stories, and therefore you have to choose whether you want to follow the narrative or try to change it. Mm, yeah. And so there are positive and negative aspects to both. Yeah. A lot of the witches' books are about how, like, it's a good thing to, like, resist and question the narrative structure that we have been taught. Mm-hmm. But, like, there's also ones that say that it's okay to find your a place that's comfortable for you within them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I, I think I, th- I think you've got it. <laughs> Anything else that we wanted to go over? Gosh, I don't know. Um, this is not, like, super relevant to the discussions about the Discworld as a whole, but if you go to DiscworldEmporium.com, they have um, really nice collector's editions of the books Hell that are yeah. hardback. I don't know how to convert money, um, like, at all. <laughs> um, the 40 books are 529 pounds if you buy. want to buy them as a set. <laughs> it's a steal. <laughs> it, you can save 5% buying them as the 40 book set. <laughs> So if you're just looking for some nice hardback versions of the book, uh, those might be worth your while. Mm, maybe. All right. Just some things that I think that like could have been explored more. One big thing I think for me personally is the Thieves Guild in Ankh-Morpork, Park, which I th- think we oh, never yeah. actually got to see much of. Yeah, I think when we really get like our best glimpse of the Thieves Guild, it's in proximity to the. Clowns Guild? The Clowning Guild? No, that's the Assassin's Guild. Oh, the Assassin's Guild. Okay, then yeah, then I don't think we get to see them at all. <laughs> yeah, and it's like, honestly, if I was running a, like, D&D game set in the Discworld, that would be my, like, big thing, is that, like, I would put players as just, like, apprentice thieves. Yeah, I mean, we do hear about how the Thieves Guild, like, functions in Ankh-Morpork, and they're basically, like, uh, legalized muggers for <laughs> the most part. And, like, that's an interesting idea. I want to understand how that works. <laughs> I also would have loved to see, like, more characters from different places. Mm-hmm. We spend so much time on Ankh-Morpork because it is, like, a proxy for, like, London and New York and, like, big western cities. Yeah. But, like, I would have liked to see more of, like, Clatch, for example. Yeah, I do think that the, like, books are very, like, they're very narrow in their geographic focus. And as a result, they're kind of narrow in the kinds of people that they focus on. Mm-hmm. Well, I think, like, despite that, there is a lot of diversity in thought and background for a lot of those characters. They're still ultimately coming from the same, like, cultural background. And that unifies a lot of thought. Yeah. Before we get to the end, top five Discworld books. Go. Okay. So number one, like I said earlier, is Monstrous Regiment. It's just my favorite book. Um, like We'll get back to rereading it someday. <laughs> my second one is I Shall Wear Midnight. Like I said before, I nice. think it's like, it is the end of the Tiffany King books for me, really. Three Feet of Clay. I think it's the best watch book. It's my favorite one, at least. Nice. Number four is Equal Rights, which I almost had this one and Feet of Clay swapped, but I couldn't decide, so it's here. And Reaper Man, because I think it's my favorite death book. Cool. <laughs> For me, I just uh, put mine chronological order. I could not. If you put a gun to my head and told me to like <laughs> pick the best one, I would just say shoot me. Yeah, no, that's totally fair. I did a lot of flip-flopping on my list. <laughs> yeah. So, in order of release, Equal Rights, mm-hmm. Small Gods, which I just, like, mm. really dug as just, like, a commentary on just, like, institutions and the need, the role of belief in, like, human life. Yeah, I think that's a very punchy book, so I get it. Hogfather, mm-hmm. it has a lot of fun moments and that, like, banger ending. Yeah, it's iconic for a reason. Monstrous Regiment as well. Yeah. I Give me more lesbians. I need them. 
<laughs> yeah. And going postal. Oh, okay, yeah. Because like it also had some good golem stuff, like Feet of Clay. Mm-hmm. But I also just like really like I like Moist as a character, and I love Adora. Oh yeah, that's totally fair. You don't have to come up with one if you don't uh, have anything that you remember. But I think best mm-hmm. moment from a book that's not in my top five is Veterinary's speech about the nature of evil. Oh, uh-huh. I-, I could probably find and read out that one. If you want to find a quote or something that you really like. Okay, yeah, let me think on it. The patrician took a sip of his beer. I have told this to few people, old gentlemen, and I suspect I never will again. But one day, when I was a young boy on holiday in Uberwald, I was walking along the bank of a stream when I saw a mother otter with her cubs. A very endearing sight, I'm sure you'll agree. And even as I watched, the mother otter dived into the water and came up with a plump salmon, which she subdued and dragged on to a half-submerged log. As she ate it, while of course it was still alive, the body split, and I remember to this day the sweet pinkness of its rose as they spilled out, much to the delight of the baby otters, who scrambled over themselves to feel in the delicacy. One of nature's wonders, gentlemen, Mother and children dining upon mother and children. And that's when I first learned about evil. It is built into the very nature of the universe. Every world spins in pain. If there is any kind of supreme being, I told myself, it is up to all of us to become his moral superior. Yeah, no, that's very good. And Fedenari at his most Fedenarius. Definitely. It explains a lot about his character, about how he, like is not an evil person, but he presents himself as evil just because that is the way to like make things happen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't have like a, a little quote for mine because I think the section it would probably be too long to read here and I also just don't have the book. <laughs> but in Monstrous Regiment, there is a scene where they've finally got into, I think, a barn to get out of the perpetual rain that seems to be in the book. And... They are supposed to be meeting up with other regiments and then they get there alone and then they are told that they're basically the last of what is going to be sent out to this war. And it is, there's like just this such a feeling of dread and hopelessness that like permeates through the book. That it's one of those things that like sticks out in my brain so clearly like to this day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so... We're almost at the end, so I want to give a big thank you, as always, to Willow Carter for our theme music, and to you, Liz, for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. This will be the end of the Weird Sisters podcast for the foreseeable future, which isn't to say we couldn't come back. There's more Discworld stuff, but, like, I think we've earned a break. (laughs) Yeah, it's been a lot of very tight reading deadlines for a few years. (laughs) But I also just want to give a big thank you to all of our patrons who supported us over the years. I'm just going to give a shout out to everybody, including those who canceled their patron subscription before actually sending us any money. Oh. <laughs> uh, so we've got JB Funk, uh, Dave Gumble, Ian, Carol, Tom, Jessica, Robin, and Pemka. Thank you all for... Yeah. Thank you all for your support. We have made literal dozens of dollars doing this show. So just about <laughs> yeah. enough that uh, it covered the cost of like hosting it and everything. <laughs> Probably not, actually. Yeah, but like, it's a weird thing to make something and share it with people. And personally for me, it's absolutely terrifying. Um, and I would not have done this on my own. So thank you for having me. <laughs> But, like, seriously, for all of you who put money towards the show, it's like, it's not like we're becoming millionaires off of this. No. But it was a lot of fun to do. And it's kind of crazy to think that there were people out there who liked what we were doing and liked it enough to, like, throw money at us for it. So, like, thank you. And hey, if this was your, like, first and so far only Discworld podcast, we're not the only ones. I wanted to shout out. Pratt Chat, <laughs> The Complete Ankh-More Pork, The Death of Podcasts, Desert Island Discworld, probably a few others I'm forgetting, but you can find them all over on the Guild of Podcasters, which is the wiki site that Ben from Pratt Chat started and which shows off uh, stuff from a bunch yeah. of podcasters, including us. <laughs> Liz, do you want to shout out like your Twitter or anything? Like, 
Yeah, I'm not like super online these days because uh, social media is just not that good for me. Yeah, same. Um, but if you want to see me like occasionally and very occasionally post things, um, you can find me on Ellie on Mars on Instagram. Hell yeah. I'm technically on Twitter as PB Manning. I never use it, but you know, feel free to give me a follow if you like this show. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think I have like three posts on that Instagram account, but uh, you know what? I might put other things there someday. So Hell yeah. <laughs> I'm thinking about doing one of those things where I like post the books I've read recently. So I think I'll do that there if you want to see what else I'm reading. Nice. And we put out a poll with all of the winners of the favorite footnote polls. And so, for the last time, for now, let's close out with the fan vote for the favorite footnote. Rats had featured largely in the history of Ankh-Morpork. Shortly before the patrician came to power, there was a terrible plague of rats. The city council countered it by offering 20 pence for every rat tail. This did, for a week or two, reduce the number of rats. And then people were suddenly queuing up with tails. The city treasury was being drained and no one seemed to be doing much work. And there still seemed to be a lot of rats around. Lord Vetinari had listened carefully while the problem was explained, and had solved the thing with one memorable phrase which said a lot about him, about the folly of bounty offers, and about the natural instinct of Ankhmark Porkians in any situation involving money. Tax the rat farms. That's all for now. But now, and forever, the turtle moves. 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 The turtle moves.